0: In this episode, we follow Kate's journey from ski instructor to entrepreneur. After graduating UC Berkeley, Kate found herself in Lake Tahoe teaching skiing. And after a few years, she thought it was time to get a different type of job and decided to send letters to a few corporations that she was using and had admired. And Cliff Bar was one of those companies that got back to her from those letters. Side note, it's really amazing that she did this and it inspires me to reach out to more brands that I love. And at Cliff Bar, Kate was there for nearly 20 years. She started in customer service and eventually started focusing on communications and working really closely with the founders, Gary and Kit Crawford. And it was during a work trip at Cliff Bar, while she was trying to pump and bring back two gallons of breast milk for her twins, that Kate had a moment. It shouldn't be this hard for working moms to go back to work and breastfeed their children. And ta-da, Milk Stork was born. Within weeks, the company gained traction and got its first corporate client. And since 2014, Milkstork has shipped over four and a half million ounces of breast milk and delivered over 73,000 packages, serving over 96 countries and during the Olympics. I am inspired by Kate's drive, but also her focus on humanity versus operations and business. And she says, business is in service of humanity and not the other way around incredible mindset from an incredible founder. Please enjoy this interview with the amazing Kate Torgerson. Hi Kate, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, great to be here.
0: Great to have you. And I mentioned to you before, but I feel like I'm meeting a celebrity because within the working mom group, the Milk Stork legend
1: is
0: (laughs) is theirs. I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thank you. Before we talk about the incredible company you built called Milk Stork that helps business traveling and breastfeeding moms, can you rewind your highlight reel all the way back and share where you grew up?
1: I grew up in Palo Alto in the '70s and '80s, which was completely idyllic, and it was your California suburb experience growing up. What I think is interesting about growing up in Palo Alto is that all of the parents of my friends were doing some pretty incredible things in Silicon Valley that most of us never knew about when we were just riding our bikes around. It was an amazing place to grow up at an amazing time. So I have a brother who is six years younger than me. I always felt like I grew up faster than him because he was so much younger. We have a big age difference. My parents, my mom was a Democratic congressional fundraiser when I was growing up. So really involved in politics at the congressional level, local and congressional level, I would say. And then my dad was, I mean, really a Silicon Valley veteran. I have a baby blanket from Lucille Packard. He worked at Hewlett Packard. He was at Apple in the 80s, did a bunch of startup. He was part of that Silicon Valley scene in, in in the 70s and 80s.
0: Incredible. And one of the questions I like to ask people is where they went to college and why, because it seems that when you look at someone's current success and profile, it seems like they knew it all and they wanted to do this and they knew from college in the first day. But I find that it's not the case after all the interviews I've done. So if you can share why you didn't go to Stanford right in the backyard and how you chose the college you went to and how that came about.
1: I never even thought of going to Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) It was a long shot. I applied to like 15 colleges. I was not some amazing student. I had learning disabilities in high school. I played a lot of sports. That was my jam. I was a solid B plus student, maybe, but always super hardworking. Cal was a long shot. I was like, well, I'll just check the Cal box along with UC Santa Cruz, Irvine, Riverside. I never expected to get into Cal. And I just remember coming home one day, my mom had set the table and there was that big fat, you know, used to get the fat envelope, right? not the skinny envelope. <laughs> and there was a fat envelope with UC Berkeley on it. And I was like, oh my God, it was a no brainer. The other thing was, And this might have been how I got in. I don't even know. It was, I played soccer there for my first year.
0: Exciting. Well, I'm excited that we are fellow alums. I think I'm biased, but Cal is the best university. So go Bears. Go Bears. You played soccer there, but what major did you choose? How did you choose it?
1: It's so funny when you're a senior, some of these colleges you have to declare majors. Like you know (laughs) anything about the world or what interests you, having only taken a few subjects in school. So I went into that first year and I took a lot of survey classes. I really fell in love with anthropology and archaeology. I had an amazing professor, Jim Dietz, who is a historical archaeologist and was somebody who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains, was homeschooled, wrote a letter, I think, to Harvard and said, I'm interested in going to college, and they accepted him. So he was just this character who had such a passion for archaeology and discovery. Once I met him and I did a couple digs with him, I was totally hooked.
0: Incredible. And so what did you do with this major after college?
1: I moved to Tahoe and I taught skiing (laughs) in the winter. (laughs) And I worked as an archaeological technician and wildland firefighter for the Forest Service in the summer. Very
0: cool. And then I know that your career spanned almost two decades then at Cliff Bar. How did that transition (laughs) to the corporate world?
1: I had been in Tahoe for four years. And it's hard to make a living in Tahoe. <laughs> and the Forest Service, you're not really working year-round. You're working seasonal jobs. And there's always a gap between the winter season and the summer season. <laughs> my parents kept saying, it's probably time to start thinking about maybe coming down the mountain because pretty soon you may not have the choice to come down the mountain. I looked around my room in Tahoe and I applied to all the companies that were in, represented in my room. Rosignol skis, helmets, the North Face, Cliff Bar. And I wrote paper cover letters and resumes and I sent them to all those companies. I didn't hear back from anybody. <laughs> so then I ended up moving home to my parents' house and I started applying for real jobs at law firms as a paralegal. And I got a few interviews at a very large law firm. And I remember just going in to those interviews and seeing the life that was in those halls and I was like I don't think I could I don't think I could do this. I ended up getting offered a job from the law firm and I had said, "Oh, I'm thinking about going to law school. I'm going to take the LSAT. I don't know." <laughs> they offered me the job and at the time it was a, way more than I ever made as a ski instructor, or firefighter, or archaeologist. And I was like, "You know, I just don't think I can wear at that time nylons every day and heels. I just don't think so." And the next day, I got a call for an interview at Cliff Bar. And I went in and I saw Cliff Bar, and it was people like me, outdoorsy, sporty people, people wearing jeans and hoodies and bands. And I was like, this is an office I can get behind. Cliff Bar was about fueling the type of lifestyle that I was really familiar with and that I believed in and wanted to inspire other people to do. So it was a perfect fit.
0: Amazing. So, did they get your letter or was it a yeah. job? Okay. Yeah.
1: Nope, they got my letter. They read my letter.
0: (laughs) And so what was your first role there? You've been there for close to 20 years.
1: Answering the phones. Literally at my first day, I walk in and they're like, there's the phone. Answer it. And if there's something really, really important that comes, it was answering customer service calls. My wrapper is torn or whatever. And they're like, if it's really important, write it down and give it to Gary, (laughs) the owner of Cliff Bar. That was customer service was my first job.
0: And what did you do after that?
1: I think I did customer service for about a year and a half. And then I moved into the sports marketing department and started doing... Clipbar relied really heavily on field marketing, sending people to triathlons and events and mountain biking races. Eventually, I headed up the field marketing program. And then from there, I one day had helped one of the executives write a speech. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> And that pivoted me over to PR and executive communications. And so I started doing a lot more speech writing and executive comms for Gary and for the CEOs that Cliff Bar had.
0: Very cool. One of my favorite customer service role profiles, if you can call it that, is a gentleman who started a local cryptocurrency fund, asset management firm. His name's Olaf Carlson Weed. And he was one of the first employees at Coinbase, but he was a customer service person who just answered every phone call that people had at the time and what was interesting is in interview he said when you answer calls at that level you hear every spectrum of question
1: oh yeah
0: and you hear how the business works in terms of what makes employees happy what makes the client happy and so you learn a lot from that
1: customer service any interaction you're having with your customers is the most important feedback you're ever who cares about the other feedback you get feedback from your customers is the feedback that matters
0: Amazing. So you were there for 18 years. And then what happened? Now you started this amazing business, but how did that transition from Cliff Bar to Store?
1: What Cliff Bar did really well is that they provided benefits to people that really met them at each unique life stage that they were going through. During my 20s and 30s, Cliff Bar was great. It was lots of mountain biking and all that. But eventually, when I got married and had my family, Cliff Bar had this really amazing supportive environment. We had on site childcare, pumping room. They really took care of their employees. I had My first child, Jax, I breastfed him for 18 months. It was rainbows and unicorns, perfect latch, great, everything awesome. Then I had twins and twins are really hard to breastfeed. (laughs) And a lot of work went into it. A lot of every kind of issue multiplied by two. Through it all, we had made it through. And so by eight months, I had a business trip. I was producing a gallon of milk every two days. A half gallon of milk a day. Incredible. And to take a four day business trip meant that I was going to have to pump two extra gallons before I left to cover because they're producing exactly what they, it's hard to produce extra milk. So I had to add pumping sessions to get to generate two extra gallons to cover my absence. And then I had to pump relentlessly while I was away so I wouldn't lose my supply and then get the two gallons that I generated while I was away back home. And I think. Because I had so much milk, I was acutely pained by the experience (laughs) and motivated. It was just so burdensome to deal with all that milk. And it just exaggerated every experience that moms have going through TSA. Well, going through TSA with three ounces of milk really sucks. Going through it with two gallons of milk super sucks. Pumping in a bathroom, that sucks. But when you're generating 10 ounces in a bathroom, that's. Really sucks on the flight. I just was like, I gotta solve this.
0: Incredible. Actually, you started Milk Stork after I was done breastfeeding my second. Hearing all the description of what you're saying brings me back in this kind of PTSD <laughs> moment where,
1: yeah, PTSD for sure.
0: Pumping in the bathroom, pumping on an airplane, pumping in a rental car. And then the horrifying part is then going to TSA. And generally, it's a male attendant who has no clue what this is. And it's like, what is this baby food, dog, where's your baby type of thing? And you're like, I'm oh like, can I just go through the other side, please? This is. Time sensitive and it's going to melt.
1: I truly believe that breastfeeding in the United States is a traumatizing experience,
0: especially for traveling and working moms in particular. Yeah,
1: it's traumatizing to breastfeed in public. It's traumatizing to try to pump at work. It's traumatizing to try to negotiate the logistics of some bureaucracy like TSA while you're breastfeeding. And this is a traumatizing experience. It shouldn't be.
0: So you had two gallons of milk, which by the way is an enormous amount on a flight and you came up with this idea on a plane. What next?
1: I was like, if I could just get the milk home sooner, it would solve so many problems. I wouldn't have to stockpile before I left. I wouldn't have to deal with a ton of milk in a hotel mini fridge. I wouldn't have to go through TSA with an enormous amount of milk. I wouldn't have to worry about the milk expiring because I'm now four days in. If I could just get it home when I pumped it, It would solve all the problems. Um, I got home the next day, I called my dad. And I said, hey, dad, I have this idea. And he was like, where do we start? We just started. How would this work? What would it look like? What does the cold chain have to look like? What logistics are going to work best for this? So we just put one foot in front of the other and tried to figure it out.
0: Incredible. And just to take a step back and frame it for the listeners who might not be aware, didn't nurse, I know a lot of girlfriends use formula. What is the statistics or the environment of people who pump, people who nurse.
1: Right now, actually, I think about 84% of women initiate breastfeeding in the hospital. And then about 50% continue to breastfeed at six months. And then it's a pretty precipitous decline after that. I think the other important statistic is that 25% of moms are returning to the office 10 days after they give birth. The fact that we have basically no paid leave in this country, and we're lucky to get it if our employers provide it, means that when you do get paid leave, you're going back at three months. That's right when your body is going from a hormonal coast of producing milk to a supply and demand relationship with breastfeeding. Meaning that at three months, your body starts responding with the amount of milk that your baby needs. So if you're at work and that moment is happening based on your pumping schedule, it just becomes so difficult to maintain a milk supply in a any kind of working environment. And most moms work. Most moms are working moms.
0: I didn't realize that 25% of moms returned back to work so quickly. That's incredible. No paid leave. So how did it start? You and your dad brainstormed what to do next, but what were those steps?
1: Really, it was like, is there a cooler that we could use to do this? What carrier can we work with? Can we ship milk? (laughs) By the time this was happening, my business trip was when the twins were about eight months old. I didn't have any more business travel or I wasn't really traveling after that one trip, I was like, hey, to my friends, like, hey, can we use you as a guinea pig? <laughs> Other women that I knew at Cliff Bar who were taking trips, like, hey, try this cooler out. Let's figure out how this will work. And we just found the right cold chain to support it. But then the challenge was, how do people place borders? Because it's not like we could Shopify. That stuff was all emerging at the time, but it didn't support three locations. Our e-commerce requires that we're shipping from a warehouse to a mom and then a mom in a hotel and then onto a third location. And that's not a cookie cutter e-commerce platform that you can just buy somewhere out of the box. So we had to build a site that could support the back end logistics of this, making sure the labeling was correct. And then fulfillment. No out-of-the-box fulfillment house wants to do a customized <laughs> kidding for every single box that was going out, really finding suppliers that bought in on it and that we're going to Go along for the ride with us. That's a really hard part of starting a business is that you don't think that you're going to have to sell yourself to your vendors, (laughs) but you do need to be like, hey, this is going to work. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great for both of us. You need their buy in.
0: And so, what came first? The funding from VCs, the partnerships with hotels, carriers?
1: No funding from VCs. I never even considered going after funding. We didn't partner with hotels or any of that. So, what came first was, I'm going to build it for moms. And I'm going to build it the old-fashioned way. I'm going to make something. I'm going to sell it and then have that sustain the business. And that's what did sustain the business. So we launched in August of 2015. We were in Tahoe on a family vacation. We're like, turn on the website. And then we got an order within, I don't even know, like a couple hours. And we're like, holy crap, now we have to fulfill this order <laughs> somehow. And then within 10 days, I'll tell this story. I did a prep. So my background was PR at that point. And I was like, I'm going to put a press release out. So I did a press release. I dialed down reporters. I had a huge list. I did the product shots in my hallway (laughs) with my iPhone. (laughs) We ended up getting coverage in Fortune Magazine when that happened. And that was within the first two weeks. Following that, I got contacted by one of the largest consulting firms in the world who was like, we want to bring a milk stork on as an enterprise, as an employee benefit, which I had never even considered because I thought, into Enterprise, explaining pumping to Enterprise was going to (laughs) be a non-starter. She was like, can we launch in 30 days? And I was like, sure. I took that call in my minivan in the childcare parking lot at Cliff Bar.
0: I'd like to call it a swagger wagon.
1: Yeah. In my (laughs) swagger wagon. Yeah. And she was like, can you launch in 30 days? And I said, yeah, we'll figure it out. So it was on rail the minute it started.
0: What consulting company, may I ask, because that's pretty innovative that they reached out to you so quickly?
1: Accenture. It was Accenture.
0: To your point of the idea of pitching to a large corporation who may not get it or most likely not get it, for them to proactively reach out because they got it so quickly, that is a huge perk for working and traveling
1: moms. That's tremendous. It's really a testament to the HR space. The thing that I have learned about HR and how it, all the various ways that that field is now defined <laughs> is that profession is largely women. There's a lot of women in HR. There's a lot of women who have had babies in HR and they understand this pain point. So they got it immediately and there really has been a sisterhood that's contributed to Milk Stork's success and that is moms use Milk Stork, go to someone in HR, typically a woman who has lived this, ask her, get this as a benefit and then that person becomes an advocate within the organization to bring it on as a benefit. It's wonderful. So it's been working women who have made Milk Stork successful.
0: Incredible. And so when you order from Milk Stork, what happens? Do I get a shipment in my home? Do I get it in my hotel room? How does that work?
1: Yeah, we ship it to wherever you need it, wherever your milk production is going to be. Sometimes at the hotel, sometimes that's a surrogate who's providing milk to a family. So we ship the materials. It's everything that that person needs to pack their milk, like bags, tape, the right and correct label. And then all she has to do is drop it with the front desk or drop it out of FedEx and it overnight's home.
0: And so what is in it that encases the milk that keeps it cool for, what is it, 96 hours?
1: We actually offer a variety of solutions now. So we have refrigerated, we can ship refrigerated milk, we can ship frozen milk. It really comes down to having a really superior cooler without getting into the weeds. It's making sure that you have the right cooler to provide the right specs on the milk.
0: And so how long does the milk last in air?
1: For refrigerated shipping, it keeps milk refrigerated for minimum 72 hours. And then our frozen options, we have one option that keeps milk frozen for 96 hours, and we just introduced a new one that keeps milk frozen for 120 hours.
0: And where do you test this?
1: We test it with our suppliers.
0: Has every delivery been successful? Has there been any travel hiccups or schedule delays or flight cancellations?
1: The way that logistics works in this world is the same way that it worked with the Pony Express 150 years ago. We are moving packages by airplane over land right now. So if there's a hurricane and a plane can't take off, that obviously impacts logistics. But I will say that because our cooling technology that we use is so robust, it can really accommodate delays that emerge, most reasonable delays that emerge due to weather or disruption. Of course, if there is some kind of natural disaster or hurricane or things like that, those are simply things that impact logistics everywhere.
0: (laughs) How does it work with partnerships? Do you have certain carriers or partnerships with airlines? How does that work?
1: The airlines are not providing pumping services to moms or anything like that. So we're supporting individuals who are traveling. And then I would say in terms of partnerships, companies are supporting women by providing this as a benefit.
0: And so I read one article that you helped bring 21 gallons of liquid gold from the Tokyo Olympics. How did that happen?
1: That was a pretty Herculean effort. So I had read about Alafine Tuliamuk, who was breastfeeding and was having to make a choice between competing in the Olympics and continuing to breastfeed her child. And I found that to be outrageous that (laughs) this incredible woman who's going for the gold would be faced with this false choice. It shouldn't be a choice. And granted, this is happening during COVID. And of course, we want everyone to be safe. And the Olympics and the IOC were taking precautions. But I think when these policies were being made, there probably wasn't a working mom sitting at that table when the policies were being decided upon. So a lot of breastfeeding and this experience of breastfeeding and pumping lives in this blind spot that no one ever considers or thinks about. And I think truly that's what happened with the IOC. They never considered that some of these athletes are mothers and the realities of being a mother often include breastfeeding. I actually just posted on LinkedIn. I said, over my dead body, this is unacceptable. And if the IOC is not going to allow breastfeeding infants, breastfeeding dyads to travel to the Olympics, then I will do what I can to get that milk home. Thankfully, Alephine was able to bring her child, Kim Goucher, who is also a basketball player for Canada. She was able to bring her child. So I'm glad to see that the IOC did amend their policies. But there are a ton of women who travel to the Olympics that are not competing to support those that are competing, nutritionists, program managers, physical therapists. They're there for the entire duration of the Olympics versus athletes, especially during COVID, who are just going in and leaving as soon as possible. We ended up supporting a lot of those women the logistics of the Olympics are way more complicated than just regular international shipping that we normally do because of the village and COVID. Those women didn't have access to FedEx. We really had to work with FedEx in Japan. We had to work with contacts in the village, people on the, the marketing side of the Olympics. We really needed to have a village come together to collect that milk and ship it back.
0: Well done. You literally brought Gold back to the states, and so it was whether it was liquid gold or not. But well done. I'd love to ask so many more questions about Milk Stork, but I'll make sure to link your website and a few articles in the show notes. Who or what inspires you?
1: I find a lot of inspiration from I call them "what if" people—people people who really are like, "What if we just did it this way?" <laughs> or "How about this?" These people are everywhere. Even when I'm in downtown Lafayette, small business owners who've not only just said "what if," but then they've taken the leap to figure it out. A lot of my friends. My team is a huge group of what-if people. And I really think that that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit is people who see an opportunity and then take a jump. I try to harvest the inspiration from those people, whether I find them on swim team or I find them in the community or I find them as friends or I find them within my team.
0: I love the what-if description. Did you have a mentor or role model growing up or even now?
1: Having been at Cliff Bar for 18 years, I do take a lot of life lessons From my experience there and from Gary and Kit specifically, I often think, well, what would Gary do? What would Kit do? One thing that Cliff Bar taught me, because I never thought I would be in business. That was not the course that I thought I would ever be on. What made sense to me about Cliff Bar was that they embraced business as an adventure, and that really spoke to my interest in the outdoors and sports, and that jived for me. The fact that it's an adventure, there is no promised outcome. You have to go along for the ride and take the highs and lows. So I really appreciated that. I think the other thing that they did really well is they always focused on their moral compass. They worked really hard to make sure that what they were doing in business was consistent with the way that they saw their world, their worldview, their morals, because there is always a rub. There's always a rub between the humanity of business and the operations of business. And I think taking a moment to pause and be thoughtful about what's happening in those moments of friction and making sure that you stay on course. And then I think the other thing is that they taught me that business is in service of humanity and not the other way around.
0: Absolutely love that. And for those who don't know, can you describe who they are at Cliff Bar?
1: So Gary and Kidder are the owners of Cliff Bar. They're a married couple.
0: You've created an amazing business. You have three kids. You spent almost two decades at Cliff Bar. What are you most proud of?
1: I'm really proud that I had an idea and I followed up on it and that it became something that is sustaining people within my organization and myself, my family and their families, and then the families of our users, that it's bringing value to people's lives. I'm incredibly proud of that, that it's meaningful.
0: And you're extending, I'm sure, the duration of most moms who want to give up. I wanted to give up at six months and I muscle through Close to a year for my first and probably nine months for my second, but if milkstork was around, I'm pretty sure I would have my goal was twelve months and that would happen. But it was logistics, it was a lot of other things that it was just too hard. And so I would have loved to, but milkstork wasn't around then. And I'm sure you've extended a lot of the breastfeeding cycles for a lot of moms out there.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I do get LinkedIn notes from moms, just thank you notes. They make my day. They just really make my day when I get them.
0: Amazing. Well, I like to ask all my guests about some growth moments, which initially the question I asked everyone was, can you share your biggest failure moment? And over time, it's evolved to be the biggest growth moment, because it kind of goes hand in hand. So if you don't mind sharing your biggest growth and or failure moment?
1: Well, yeah, I definitely don't think of failure moments. When I look back, I'm not like, oh, that was a day that I failed. I do look back and think, well, that sucked. (laughs) I don't want to go through that again. I would say the pandemic has been that moment, personally and professionally, so many levels, just everything so disrupted. That is a difficult, I don't love to believe in the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but I did learn a lot during the pandemic. I learned about my mental health. I learned about my family's mental health. I learned about helping my family feel safe during crazy times. I learned to not forecast too far into the future because (laughs) two weeks out is probably A decent amount of time to start forecasting and planning for something a year and a half from now is just forget it. And uh, just to be present and to try new things. I've learned a lot during the pandemic.
0: I love that. Well, when you started Milkstork, and this is now close to seven years ago now, what were the hardest parts about it? Was it the building side, the coming up the idea side, creating partnerships?
1: Everything is hard. So I can tell you, what's hard is that when you're starting something. Resounding static is what the hell are you doing? This is a crazy idea. I think probably every entrepreneur gets that where it's just a wall of disbelief, confusion, criticism. And you really have to believe in your pain point and your solution to that pain point to cut through that. That doesn't happen as much now because we have credibility, but that was really the hardest waking up every day and being like, okay. And I think what a lot of entrepreneurs do is they don't tell anyone their idea to preserve a safe spot to let that idea grow and thrive. But eventually, for anything to happen, you got to put it out there in the world and start talking about it. That's when you get really good at selling it, (laughs) is that the static can take it or leave it, but you have to be able to advocate for it. And one thing that I did too, is I made business cards right away it said founder and CEO of Milkstark. I just carried those around because it felt like a talisman to me, like a little superpower to cut through the static. You can say what you will, but I am the founder and CEO of this company and I am going to bring it to life. So that was the hardest part. What was not hard for me was product market fit. That is really hard for a lot of folks. It's really hard for entrepreneurs to find the, the users that are going to consume their product. I was lucky because I, and I think this was the same for Gary with Cliff is that I knew my audience. I knew who needed it. So I didn't need market research. I knew the pain point really, really well.
0: What was it like building the business with your dad?
1: It was awesome. It's so funny because my dad's the quant kind of guy. He's University of Chicago, quant systems guy, kind of an introvert. And all of a sudden I was talking to my dad every day, actively solving problems with your father. You learn a whole different side. (laughs) Our relationship has just grown. It's so much richer and we're varied than it has ever been. I think it's amazing. I talk to them every day.
0: You mentioned your team and how strong they are and they're filled with what if mindsets. What's your team look like?
1: So we're now a team of nine, small and mighty. We have an amazing customer care team. We've brought on new people because we're now back in a growth stage, hopefully coming out of the pandemic soon. They are all entrepreneurs themselves. I won't say every single one of them is a parent, but most of our team is parents. And so I think they're really fueled by what we're doing for working parents and specifically for working women, working moms.
0: What does success mean to you?
1: Success means that I'm doing something meaningful in the world, something that I care about and something that brings value to someone else. That's basically it for me. It's not about money and it's not about status. I'm making something that's valuable to somebody else and it's helping someone.
0: I love that. Milkstork has shipped over 4 million ounces of breast milk to date, over 70,000 deliveries in 90 plus countries, and I think you work with over 800 partners and companies. What's next for the company?
1: We're moving into other areas to look for ways to support breastfeeding moms and working women and parents. I will say that with this COVID world that we live in, I try not to project too far into the future. What can we do now to help working moms? Working moms are in crisis right now. Breastfeeding moms who had babies during the pandemic are coming back to work. They need to have benefits to support them. I'm really focused on what we need to do right now to help working moms and their families. Talk to me in 2023, <laughs> but 2022, we have our work cut out for us.
0: And what's next for Kate Torgerson?
1: I'm excited to keep growing Milk Stork. bring more uh, what-if people into the organization. And yeah, I'm not a New Year's resolutions person, so I don't have any resolutions right now.
0: If any of the listeners want to either share milk stork or share it with their company or other friends, where can people get milkstork within their company or share it as a benefit?
1: I would encourage people to go to milkstork.com. We also have resources for moms to ask their companies to provide milkstork as a benefit. We're happy to send those over. Because really, most of those companies that offer milkstork as a benefit did so because a mom spoke up and asked for the support that she deserves. And most companies are eager to provide that support for women. So I would encourage them to reach out if they would like to bring Milk Stork into their organizations. We'll help them do it.
0: Wonderful. Well, Kate, I had a blast in this conversation. Thank you so much for the conversation, but also bringing Milk Stork to life.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great.